is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast taking artists at their word like a sucker. Today we're discussing the meaning-optional art form that is pop and roll lyrics. Who are they aimed at? How do they relate to the music? And how do you, the listener, relate to whoever the words are actually being spoken to in their literary context? I'm Mark Linsenmeyer, just singing along with the hook, blissfully ignorant of the fascist undertones of the song. I'm Al Baker, endlessly fretting about songwriters' circulatory systems. And our guest, introduce yourself, Dave. My pen name is Dave Philpott, and I'm the author of the ridiculous books Dear Mr. Kershaw After Nick, Dear Mr. Popstar, and Grammar Free in the UK, where we take songwriters to task over their lyrical content. Yes, tell us a little more to get us started, since really this is just an excuse to talk about your project and your amusing books, that we can fill time by having you read out of them, but let's... uh. At least get the overview out. How long has this been going on for? People will be very surprised at the fact that the artists have actually participated in this. Just give us a little intro for the folks that haven't heard of what this is. It's been going since 2008. My background is I'm a professional musician. I, I work on the circuit doing covers, and my whole life is music. I'm obsessed with music. But my father doesn't have any interest in music whatsoever, so... I found it very fascinating that you could actually read a lyric out to somebody that has no pre-knowledge of an artist and where, for example, you and I would look at the stones and go, my God, I see a red door and I want to paint it black. You and I would go, well, that's the same pen that bought us sympathy for the devil. We'd be looking with reverence. Whereas my dad would say, if he sees a red door and wants to paint it black, make sure that he has a strong undercoat on the door, otherwise it's going to turn out purple. And he has no care at all as to who's written it. Similarly, Duran Duran, you and I would look at him and say, you know, probably one of the finest pop groups of our time. Hungry Like the Wolf, fantastic. My dad would say, you can't isolate starvation to wild dogs. What about famished like the ferret? or peckish like the panda, et cetera, et cetera. So we basically had lots of letters where I would play my dad's songs and write his notes down, and we had them all put on this silly little website, expecting no reaction whatsoever. And then we built up this massive Facebook community, and then one day somebody said to us, Nick Kershaw's read your letter, Peter Hamill's read your letter, Tasman Archer's read your letter, would you like a reply? And we just stockpiled a load of replies and we managed to put these books out. But we did it without using the industry, Mark. We were doing it through the back door of the industry. We mm-hmm. were using roadies, bass techs, you know, guitar techs. In the case of one artist, we got their hairdresser to do it. And we accumulated this material and just did it right through the back door, didn't use management. And then here we are like three books later. That's basically it. I was thinking this was despite being familiar with the origin story, clearly, given your obsession with music, that this is a a labor of respect in that I'm actually going to engage your lyrics. Other people might just hum along with the chorus. I'm actually going to listen to what you say and try to actually interpret it in some way. Not, it's a humorous way. It's not, let's uh, uncover this together. Let's do some dialectical analysis. And it's not very charitable is what I'm saying. But to match your reverence for the art form with whether it's actually your father answering it or or now you've just done a lot of these on your own, right? I I took over about five or six years ago because I I was able to channel him in the end and Mm -hmm. sort of, you know, think, well, also I moved from London to Salisbury, so I wasn't in in the area. 
But I thought, okay, let's just me sit down now and pretend that I have no interest in in, in uh-huh. who's written this and just look at the lyric. So there was an instance once where I played my dad the lyric and he found me up. He says, oh, I've done some research into this artist. I said, well, we can't do that one then because you're supposed to know nothing. Okay, so the <laughs> second you start doing research, the wheels have fallen off. So I just do it now and I just go in there channeling what he'd say and think, just imagine you've got no interest in other anything other than being like a compliance department for, for music or, or being an internal audit and then looking at the lyric and saying, we found some issues. So I was interested when I was reading through some of the parts of your book, because it seems like part of what you're doing really successfully in the notes and queries that you're writing to these musicians is channeling a very particular kind of English folk figure. So I don't know if, Mark, in America, you have the phrase green ink, like writing in green ink. Mm, no. The idea is it's a very particular kind of person which exists in like English folk mythology who spends all of their free time writing extremely picky and inconsequential letters to usually local newspapers, sometimes national newspapers. There's a kind of long-running joke in British comedy, which you find in Monty Python and like, earlier places like this. This very particular kind of small-c conservative busybody who just spends their entire time trying to usually spoil other people's fun or point out that people aren't as clever as they think they are. That seems like the kind of character that you're channeling in these books. I'm really curious to know whether your dad is just that kind of person or to what extent you were trying to, I guess, satirize that kind of habit that a lot of English people seem to have. That's exactly what it is. And we did do a couple of silly letters to a local paper and we were making the, ex- the like just more and more exaggerated just to see how many would get published. <laughs> so it's exactly what you just said. And what's funny, when I've dealt with a lot of American artists like the Nackens, there's loads of American artists who've just said, this completely reinforces that mad stereotype that we've got of the English. And I said, that's exactly what we're trying to do. But the reason why we used a pseudonym, these are pen names, is because there is me, okay? But what I like to do is say, right, if I use my real name, I'd have to stop at this point before it got ridiculous. But if you have a pseudonym, you've got that mask behind to hide behind where the nth degree, if you're being sensible, is the starting point for a pseudonym. So, yeah, I like the fact that Derek is very over-familiar. He's like the guy that basically barges in backstage at one of your gigs with a laminate on, and nobody knows how he's got the laminate, and starts to dictate to you what your songs are about. And I'm reminded of one of our contributors knows somebody in a very, very famous heavy metal band, and he said that this singer was backstage once, and he'd written a song about a freight train. That's all it was, okay? But it was with like a female perspective, and this guy barged through and said to the lead singer of this band, I love that song that you wrote about your girlfriend. And the guy said, it's about a train. And the bloke said, no, it isn't. Okay. So I love the fact that it's the listener's interpretation skewing from an individual perspective, what the lyric does to them, as well as what, as well as what the lyricist has done. Excuse me. I seem to perhaps have a fire alarm going off in my building. All right. I'll be right back. Ah, that's all right. Cool. Well, let me start us on one of the case studies here. So you provided a bunch of these. So you've got your long form ones and your short form ones. Is that because you know the short form ones aren't going to be answered or these are just sort of afterthoughts that you you put in to fill out the book? 
based on more famous material or why this distinction between the long and the short? Well, because some of the letters are extremely involved. Both the letters and the replies are very, very involved. So we like to put like these breathers in because I'm actually formatting the new book at the moment. So after you've had a really heavy going letter, I think it's really funny just to have a little breather in there that's like a one-liner. We will get in replies to those as well. But what's very important here, Mark, is that there's no deception involved here. What we do, we tee up the artist before we go into battle, so to speak. So we'll get in touch with an artist because we've had a lead like from a bass player or a tech. And we're like, this is what we do. Just think of us as that really annoying, over-familiar busybody that's been haranguing you backstage. So they're all in on the joke. And we say to them, look, just imagine we're that guy. And, you know, you can be as outraged or whatever as you like. I think the one-liners and the little unanswered breathers are are important because otherwise it's just really, really heavy going. Well, and I wasn't sure, I don't know, certainly with your, your third book that was all aimed at punk stars, punk, punk singers. Yeah. Uh, it seemed like you were digging a little deeper in the, in the, in your musical well of knowledge uh, or was this just, <laughs> ow, ow. <laughs> so sorry guys, there's no fire, but there is a fire alarm and I don't know when it's going to turn off. So maybe I should sit out of this conversation. We'll leave enough <laughs> of that in there. People will understand why Al is being silent, but he can type things in the chat and I will be... Oh, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> I've actually wondered, I got over COVID recently and my voice kind of went away while I had it a little bit. And I was like, well, what would happen if I got throat cancer or you know, whatever it is? Most of my podcasting would just stop, of course, but like the longest lasting one that would probably still be going, would I just have them do it without me? Or would I do something like this where I'm like typing along with them or be their secretary or some not relevant to anything, but giving <laughs> Al's siren a chance to stop? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. One of these short ones here, read the Bon Jovi one. And so we hear it in your voice. Oh, yeah. Okay. See, that one really niggled me. The voice, Al, if you can hear us, I'm imagining that this is the green pen voice. Okay. So I would say, um, dear Mr. Jovi, we have listened to your particular song and we worry if it doesn't matter whether Tommy and Gina make it or not, whether they should be so bothered about this irrelevant goal. Because the lyric is, it doesn't make a difference if we make it or not. We're halfway there. Well, what does it matter? If it does make a difference, just stay at home. Don't even go halfway. Just stay at home on your sofa. And this got me to like pull up the video. This is a song that came out when I was in high school or middle school, high school anyway, but it was not something I was on board with. It was very popular and I kind of was a little more snooty about my musical tastes at the time and a bunch of guys jumping up and down, looking all with their long hair. I liked the cars. I liked like more classic Toto in Chicago, you know, musicianship oriented groups. And this is a weird song in the presentation. And it's got these lyrics that are ostensibly kind of like Bruce Springsteen-esque literary, you know, here's a struggling couple. Will they make it or not? But it's so swept up in its genre in we're having a fun time that it's just, it's a really strange, you know, then to throw this story that I guess was written by Bon Jovi with another guy who was not in the band who had written a song with them in the past, you know, their other big single, it was kind of based on one or both of theirs experience of being poor, or trying to make it as a musician and having a 
girlfriend who is a waitress. Like it, there's some real grit there, but it's delivered in this way as if to invite misinterpretation. I don't know. What do you take of that whole as a case study of the way that that lyric is presented in that setting? It's quite a strong image. The whole thing about Tommy work, you know, being on the dock and Gina's, you know, work in the diner all day. But you've got that strong anthemic chorus, which is prefaced by this middle eight. And the lyric is literally, we've got a hold on what we've got. It doesn't make a difference if we make it or not. We've got each other, and that's enough for love. We're halfway there, living on a prayer. And you're going, well, if you're not bothered about it, why are you making the journey? It's this contradiction. But I've got a theory about this sort of thing. I think what happens sometimes is that a writer will say, look, I've got a corking chorus here. It doesn't really matter what we put before it because Mm -hmm. no one's going to look at that bit. But obviously, if you're sitting down and looking at the lyric as if you're like an internal audit officer, then you can't hear the music and you can't hear the anthemic chorus. All you're doing is looking at the lyric and you're treating each lyric in the same manner as the next. Whereas the writer is saying, well, okay, we'll put that massive chorus in there and it doesn't really matter what we put in before it. I'm reading in the voice of Al. Reminds me of the storied history of Born in the USA and its misinterpretation as a nationalistic anthem. How does this kind of misinterpretation compare to the sillier ones of Derek? What we're talking about there, Al, it's all about the listener. I mean, I've got this theory sometimes where, you, you know, somebody says, I'm working on a new album. Democracy, for example, it took like three years to come out. And Axel says, we've got to get the bass compressed right. I wonder sometimes if an artist thinks, look, as long as it's in the studio, it's mine, okay? But it's like any art form. But the second it's exposed and it's released, I lose all control over the interpretation. And I lose something because in a certain respect, it's not mine anymore. I've seen it on the front line being a musician where, for example, I did a gig about a year ago. And I sang a song by Billy Fury. He was our our Elvis Presley, Billy Fury. Mm -hmm. And he's got this song called Halfway to Paradise, which is an absolutely beautiful lyric. But because the listener, because one of the audience members told me it was the main song of her husband that run off with this other woman, she has now taken every single lyric of that song and twist contorted it so that it's about his infidelity. Where In fact, it's not about that at all. Sometimes it's willful interpretation based on the situation of the person that's listening to it. So the answer to your question now is there's nothing that Bruce can do about it. That's not the sort of lyric that Derek would pick on because there's nothing in there where we'd say, well, that doesn't make sense. It all pretty much makes sense. But I think the problem is if you're listening to a particular song with a certain mind view or a certain prehistory, or you've had some sort of bad or good situation relating to that lyric, then that is going to fully color how you interpret the lyric. Another comment from Al. Is that perhaps one of the things that musicians get out of replying to your letters, that they can confront their fear of being misinterpreted in a fun way? Relatedly, have you found any pattern of what kinds of musicians are more keen to respond or more able to join in with the joke? Second party question, all genres. I like to engage you with the punks because they're, they're quite an intelligent lot, actually. A lot of the punks, they're really quite articulate and very, very intelligent people. But no, I didn't find any particular genre to be more receptive than others. We had Rupert Heiner, our book launched in 2018, and he said, we did a Q&A, and Rupert Heiner said, you're poking that mischievous part of every musician that we all have that we don't get a chance to showcase. So it's a beautiful thing just to be reading on the tour bus and say, 
right, I would actually put in my mischievous side and they'll either reply in humour or they'll tell us where the lyrics gone wrong or right. And a lot of the time, the artist in comedic form will expose something about that lyric that I've uncovered that nobody knows. I'm reminded of something that Bruce Thomas told me. He says hello, by the way. Okay, Bruce Thomas and I are quite good friends. Bruce told me, you know the song How Long by Ace? Hello. Okay, now what's your interpretation, guys, as to what that song's about? I mean, that's a perfect example of one that I only know the chorus and I've never taken a moment. I can't even sing you the verse at this point. It's so far off my radar. Okay, but the interpretation would be that it's an affair. How long has this been going on? Okay. And okay. Well, what actually happened was there was a bass player who was moonlighting with another band and he was thinking of joining this other band and he was in a rehearsal room one day and the guitarist from his proper band walked in, saw him and went, how long has this been going on? Because he's like having an affair because he's trying out for another band. So to go back to your original question, there's something within every musician that's mischievous. It's like a little release for them to get a silly letter reply in a very silly way, like going along with our misinterpretation, but sometimes revealing a little nugget of information which no one else has ever seen before. Well, I'm sure they appreciate, saw in some of the punk letters where you'd sort of throw in, in the text of the letter, song titles from several other songs. It was clear that you weren't just someone who is keying in on, you know, like the paint it black thing. You actually had a reverence for their body of work and are not just like picking out the one phrase, you know, how long has this been going on or whatever, you know, okay, that, yeah. that is the only thing that the average person who's not really paid attention to your music, but has at least heard the song once or twice. And that's the only thing that would stick to them. And then they feel like I can comment on that. I heard one phrase, like as yeah. if that is what the cultural product is about. And that is almost insulting to artists to feel like, ah, it's as, as if you were, uh, you know, some actor that played Batman and you were calling him Batman or whatever, you know, calling the Michael Richards Kramer or whatever the thing that they're most known for that shows that you don't have actually any real interest in what they do. Actually, I take that as a compliment because you're wrong. OK, <laughs> because what I actually do, if I make an introduction and say, I mean, with the punk, you see, this is the other thing. Artists tell each other. OK, so Nick Kershaw would say to another artist like Howard Jones, if you get an approach from Dave and Derek, it's OK, it's going to be fine. OK, so a lot of the artists were telling one another. So with the punks, and it's also really good if I do a pitch to somebody, they go, look, I've already got your book, so I've already sold. But if an artist says yes, what I like to do, I've got to think about the fact that their fans are going to be reading the letter. So. I think that it's only respectful for me to take a deep dive. I will live that band for as long as it takes to write that letter. They look dashed off, Mark and Al, but they take hours mm -hmm. and hours to write. So if an artist says, yes, I'm game, what I'll then do is research them. I'll look into their back catalogue. I'll look into what band members joined other bands. I'll look at Discogs, which is like my Bible. I'll look at, I'll look at B-sides. I'll take lyrics from other records and I will actually piece this thing together. It can take, I mean, I've just done one now. It can take me a day to do it properly. And that way, when the artist gets the letter, they know that when their fans read the letter, they're going to make the same mistake that you nicely made there and say, Christ, this guy knows this band inside out. But what I'm actually doing is I'm paying due reverence to the fact mm -hmm. that this artist has joined in. So I said, right, I will take a deep vibe. I'll get everything I can on the artist, not before pen goes to paper, but certainly before I send it out and say it's done. 
Well, you do very. I'm back. Oh, I'm back. The fire, <laughs> right. The fire, the fire alarm is the fire alarm is fixed. You do very well to hide the amount of effort that goes into the production of the letters. But what really surprised me was the amount of clear effort on show in some of the responses. Like some of them ran for pages and pages. And especially in the context of the way you describe a lot of the letters being written, like through favors from roadies, like people hearing rumors and so on. Just imagining what it's like being a touring musician and the amount that you have to care in the middle of a tour, which is I I imagine when a lot of these letters get written, to write two or three quite thoughtful pages in response to an incredibly silly letter. It's obviously must be really gratifying for you, but it's really interesting as well. Maybe you've talked to people, talked to some of the musicians about this in particular, but what do you think they get out of it? The first thing is, if you really admire an artist, and then you find out that they've got a really good sense of humour, and they've got the ability to poke fun at themselves, which is what they're doing a lot of the time in this thing. What are you going to do? You're going to like the artist even more, aren't you? It's a released, I mean, a couple of musicians have said to me in the past, you know, my inbox is clogged every day with requests. And I get this and I think this is a breath of fresh air. This is something that I've never done before because it's utterly unique, by the way. And I'll probably never get a chance to, to show my mischievous side again or showcase a point about that lyric. So I might as well just dive in and write two or three pages because I know my fans are going to read it as well because it's going to be read by thousands of people. So the answer is that no, nobody loses. And I get surprised. Again, it's preconceptions, isn't it? Sometimes somebody will say, you should contact X artist. And I'll go, well, actually, his public persona, he'd probably bite my head off. OK, but they don't. They might write back in a cod offended way. But what I find is that the more angry they are, you know, in character, the more fun they've actually had because they come back to you afterwards and say, oh, man, that was a blast. Just to get one of the slightly longer ones out, I have the one in front of me from Cutting Crew. The letter that you write is exactly kind of that thing of, you know, calling Michael Richards Kramer or whatever, of just saying, uh, here, I'll just, Ray, I just died in your arms. I must say I am utterly dumbfounded by the above statement. Aside from being grammatically dubious, it simply cannot be true. I'm certain that I would recall such a grisly incident. In addition, my wife, Jean, would have been most alarmed to witness my return from an evening in your company holding a male corpse. As for something I said being the cause of your demise, I would simply state that even a rudimentary grasp of biology would give lie to your assertion that one can pass away from being spoken to while hugged. And then there's a couple more uh, paragraphs, one of which just is making fun of the name of the band, that it sounds like they're a bunch of hairdressers. And his response was, as a hairdresser, this song wasn't about you, but it was about a, a regular lady customer in our salon. And the something she said, she wanted a stupidly huge amount of hairspray on the new beehive style I had fashioned for her that evening. And suddenly I fell and completely passed out from the fumes. And he, he writes a little more of that. So that's a nice, you know, you gave kind of a quippy dashed off thing. Doesn't necessarily show deep knowledge, but you're having fun. And he gave a response that probably he gets crap about like the name of his band all the time, but, and just embraced it and like, okay, I'll answer a joke with a joke. Yeah. Another thing that's really important is that when this whole thing started, it was literally us taking lyrics and saying, that makes no sense. It makes no sense. Okay, so Vanessa Williams, no, the sun never goes around the moon. If it did, we'd all be dead and we'd be burnt as heretics if we said about it 600 years ago. With Squeeze, have got this lyric where, I mean, Chris Difford to me, geez, I mean, Difford and Tilbury to me are up there with Lennon and McCartney as far as songwriting mm-hmm. projects go. But he's got a lyric where he says, basically, he's got a song called Tempted, and it's about coming back from holiday. And he said, I'm at the airport, the car park, the barrage carousel. No, you're not. 
you actually come from the airport, you get your baggage, and then you go to the car. So there were literal things where we said that is literally, literally wrong. But sometimes we'll get an artist where we'll actually do an audit, <laughs> audit and we say there's nothing untoward here it's all beautifully written there's nothing that we can take away and say this is wrong so what we're going to have to do is willfully misinterpret it deliberately get the wrong end of the stick for the purposes of a joke so we've got two subsets of letters we've got the letters where we go you are wrong this makes no sense and then we've got the other letters where i say there's nothing wrong with this we are going to completely misunderstand it and we'll just build a story around it and then you can come back with and say whatever you like but you'll probably give us a little germ in there as an Easter egg as to what the song's really about. Maybe read the Brian Adams one. Have you got it there? Because I haven't got it in front of me here. Brian Adams has stated that everything he does, he does for me. The soft rocker recently visited the Canadian Prime Minister and had his photograph taken with him. He also performed at the opening ceremony of the International Cricket Council's World Cup tournament in Bangladesh. I can categorically state that neither action benefited me in any way, shape, or form whatsoever. <laughs> Just the simple, you know, it was in the dine your arms that just that someone is singing in second person. And so, but, you know, the only person that can receive it in that form is if you were actually writing it for your girlfriend or, you know, whoever you're sending it to and everybody else, it is a voyeur. And that's just the nature of the form. Yeah, that's right. Conversely, along those same lines, it's almost visceral to be serious for a moment. When you listen to a lyric, I'm a Scott Walker fanatic i have been a scott walker fanatic for 30 years and then he's got this song and he says you're on your own again and you're your best again that's what you tell yourself and then there's another lyric where he says repeat our dreams to someone new and it's obviously about a relationship and and you get that tingle because you go my god i thought that was just me you know you've actually nailed it and then you identify with it completely, but then you feel slightly solid because you think, well, that's a really bad part of me that he's actually focused on because he's got that as well. The same with Morrissey, one of the best lyrics ever written. So there's a club if you like to go, you might meet somebody that, that really loves you. So you go and you stand on your own and you leave on your own and you go home and you cry and you want to die. And you, the first time I heard that lyric as a, as a kid, which is worse, you go... Oh my God. And then you go, oh, then, but you kind of then recoil away from it because it's nailed it so viscerally, if you understand. So one thing that I think is kind of interesting about the project of the letters and a reason why you will certainly never, ever run out of material mm. is that kind of the core joke of the letters is that if you take any song lyric or any piece of poetry, literally, almost any song lyric or almost any piece of poetry, literally, it's interesting that you've done a lot with punk because punk is often one of the big counterexamples to this. You will always end up with something that doesn't make any sense. As you just kind of alluded to, the way that metaphors work in songwriting is you write something which doesn't make any sense on the face of it. And so that is a signal to the audience that they have to think about the content of the lyrics in a non-literal way. So I was just listening to a bunch of songs today to try and prep myself for this. And one of the obvious ones I came up with was Neil Young, A Heart of Gold. It's a really stupid example, but there's no such thing, right? And you could write a letter to Neil Young about how, you know, he needs to see his cardiologist or whatever. But that's kind of one of the core functions of a lyric, to my mind at least, is to write in metaphors around what the song is really about. 
And part of what makes it so interesting to listen to good lyrics as a listener is that job of trying to figure out. You can almost kind of take for granted that a good lyricist is never going to spell out for you exactly what they're trying to get across in a song. And a part of what makes lyric writing a good and interesting art form, at least, you know, in the post Bob Dylan era of music, is there's really fun literary criticism game that you get to play just as an average music listener where you're trying to figure out, okay, we can take for granted the fact that what this songwriter is saying isn't meant to be taken literally. So what is it then supposed to be about? And that's kind of where most of these jokes seem to be coming from, is that the most stupid, boneheaded way to approach popular songwriting is to just stop at what is being literally said and deny yourself the pleasure and the challenge of trying to extract a deeper, more interesting meaning from these songs. I think the choice of key joke that you've chosen is super interesting because I think it gets directly at what makes songwriting such an interesting art form. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm a massive fan of Neil Hannon. I've been a Divine Comedy fan since 1994. And he said something in an interview once where he basically said, you've written one line and that's the golden line. That's everything that you want to express is in that one line. But then you have to write another line that rhymes with it. So are you sacrificing? <laughs> you know, and so basically, you know, everything else is a kiss off, you know, but I'm looking at the other line. So he'll say, you've got one message to put across, but then you think, well, what rhymes with that? And then your next line is really superfluous in a way. That's kind of something that I think separates a good songwriter from a great one is the ability to make the supporting lines in a song express interesting and relevant different features of the same theme that the core line is supposed to come out with. So Neil Hannon's a a terrific example because for some reason Something for the Weekend was a song that immediately popped into my head. That something else I love is nonsense songs and Neil Hannon is very close to writing kind of nonsense songs a lot of the time, which must be really good grist for your mill. Oh, we've got him in the first book. Yeah. Yeah. But one of the hard things about writing songs is that once you've got the clear idea, the clear keys, uh, the hook, the thing that's kind of your core idea for the song is how to, as you say, write lines that rhyme with them, but which nonetheless do useful work in also communicating the core message. For me, at least, one of the things that separates good songwriters from great ones is the ability to do that rather than merely come up with rhymes to fill the space between the bits that you really care about. Yeah, I'm not suggesting for a moment that Neil Hannon did actually, did, he actually was talking in the interview about the problems. That is what's hard, though. He's, he nailed it. That is the hard, that's the hard bit. Another thing that I love is sometimes when you, you've got these lyrical cliches, you know, you know, eyes is going to rhyme with surprise or alibis or lies. You know, it's coming from maybe a weaker writer because I love wordplay, which is, you know, part of the fun of what we do in these books. What I love is when you hear a lyric and you think, oh, well, I, I know where that's going to go. Okay. So, for example, in Paranoid Android by Radiohead, the first time I heard that, I did what everyone else does. You know, when Tom York sings, When I Am King, you know the next lyrics are going to be, You Will Be Queen, because it's a pastiche on, on Heroes. And then he comes out with, When I Am King, You Will Be First Against the Wall. And you think, My God, that's really hooked you in there. And also, there's an Icicle Works song where Ian McNabb says, we had our dreams and one by one they all, and you think he's going to say came true, but he says they all fell through. Now, I think when you get a lyric that's written as well as that, it actually hooks you in because you've, ex- you've expected this cliche, but then you're actually exposed to a really important lyric, which it takes the rest of the song. 
or is very integral to that song and it's hooked you in because you've been thrown off thinking it's a cliche it's just brilliant writing i know it's a device but if you get a cliche and then you actually put your own twist on it i think that's that is poetry i think when it's done properly i don't know if i can recall any of the letters in particular where you're really just calling out the fact that your whole song is a massive cliche and it's not actually saying anything are there any that come to mind in particular where that was really the point behind the letter I'm really going to get back to what, because Al nailed it so well earlier. We're the green pen guy, okay? So we are extremely over-familiar. We've got no right to be writing these letters in the first place. But at the same time, if somebody writes a very affronted letter to the local paper about whatever, they'll do it in a polite, calm, measured way, won't they? So we get a lot of comparisons with Henry Root. I mean, I think it's a lazy comparison. I don't think we're anything like Henry Root. I think we're more like the Time Wasted Letters or we're more like Bob Servant. I think the key to making this funny is to be polite, calm, don't be rude. It's like you get more effect from saying something quietly than shouting it. So I will never in a letter say, this is rubbish. I will say, I'm perplexed by it or you bamboozle me with this and you're polite. And then they'll answer probably in a rant or politely. But I don't think there's anything funny about saying this is rubbish because you strip it to pieces. Sure. But still the reason. So I recall thinking in this way as I was hearing various classic rock songs growing up, whenever anybody, any song says everybody, like just stop right there because what you're about to say does not actually literally apply to everybody. If everybody got up and dance, yeah. it would be chaos. It would be, if everybody needs somebody to love, like, don't make generalizations like that. Just everybody does need somebody to love, Mark. All right. That's not a, the best example, but. Yeah, you're right. That would be the kind of thing, if I was writing a letter about that, it would be picking on, in particular, what I feel like is just a lazy bit of songwriting. You know, that it's just by saying everybody, it's like a call to action to whoever's hearing. You know, it is not literally talking about everybody in the world. Everybody wants to rule the world. Let's say that. Yeah. So were you behind the change mark in popular songwriting between the old days of everybody and the kind of newer days from the late 90s onwards of everybody in the house? Ah. So you're specifying at least where all the people <laughs> All X such that X has property uh, P. Uh, yeah, therefore, exactly. I want to logically diagram. <laughs> Russellian denoting... We should take another example here. Should I read the Gloria Stefan one? She replied to that. Ah, all right. Well, here, I'll read it and you can characterize the response. You just provided the short one. Dear Gloria Stefan, I was most perturbed to learn that the rhythm is going to get me tonight. To the best of my knowledge, <laughs> I am not consciously offended movement or variation comprised by the regular repeating or alternation of varying quantities or conditions. And so I'm perplexed as to why retributions are being planned for this very evening. There's certain artists where I just like to keep writing. There's something I find inherently funny about certain artists. And Gloria Estefan, God bless her, is one of them. But I did another one to her where I basically said, in 1987, I heard you on, on the Ken Bruce radio show saying that you were going to keep on counting until I was yours. It's now 37 years on. I'm still happily married. I'm just wondering where you are in this pointless numerical tally. And she <laughs> tweeted back, she tweeted back, said, Oh, I lost count years ago. But as regards that one, yeah, the rhythm is going to get you tonight. There's something inherently funny about just the fact of syncopated beats having retribution planned for somebody. I just love the fact that when she wrote, or whoever wrote that lyric, never thought that some idiot like me in character would go back and say something as ridiculous as that. 
that's the beauty of it. You know, you think it's what I said before. You write it, you go, that's quite nice. You release it, and then it's just listened to and interpreted by silly people and over familiar people or just people taking it literally. That's the whole fun about what we're doing. But I think that that lyric is. I don't know if I want to say lazy or a bad lyric, but it is partaking in some kind of weird ritual. The literary reference is sort of like to the dancing shoes that the child puts on and it makes them dance until they die. Like, you know, it's kind of has some backing of music as a force that is going to control you. And there's so many songs, you know, dance related songs about music as some otherworldly force that is going to take you and do its will upon you. So I don't know if, you know, that's a cliche lyric. It's like, it's not cliche such that it bothers me. It's definitely the kind of thing that would have bothered me as a snooty songwriter wannabe growing up. And so it seems like ripe for that kind of response. You've also got to consider that if you've listened to that track in the morning and, you know, the rhythm's going to get you that evening, what are you doing for the rest of the day? I mean, she's assuming that you're listening to it on the dance floor. Supposing you just, you know, you're waking up and it's eight o'clock in the morning. Oh, the rhythm's going to get me tonight. What can I do? I've got eight hours to kill yet. Tonight's going to be a good night. Yes, there are all these assumptions of, of place in some of these things. <laughs> like, well, that's, that's great. I just got to get through the rest of my work day. Tonight's going to be a good night. Yeah, and also, you know, when Dion Warwick says, do you know the way to San Jose? We don't know where she is starting from. It's no good. Obviously, get Bing Maps. Go and get Root Finder. But if you can't tell me where you are now, you know, Tony Christ is saying, do I know the way to Amarillo? Well, yeah, but we need a starting point. And also, with Pulp, I've just looked at one to Jarvis Cocker. Jarvis Cocker says, let's all meet up in the year 2000 at two o'clock by the fountain by the road. All very well. Location, time. But without a day, they've got 365 days to choose from there. We need some more information, Jarvis. He didn't reply to that. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know the way to San Jose? You know, it's interesting that you didn't make fun of the thing that everybody makes fun of about that song, which is it's Do You Know the Way to San Jose? <laughs> like this weird, what is that? Are you barking? <laughs> it's just a, a strange, what is the role of that exclamation in relation to what was just said? It's a very mysterious song to me. As much as like Bacharach and David are to be rightly revered, I've got other issues with them because they say, why do birds suddenly appear every time you're near? In my case, that's normally breadcrumbs in the park. (laughs) But with somebody like Bacharach and David, there you've got a lyricist that says one thing and is invited, sometimes said in the simplest way, and it's inviting you to delve. I think Bacharach and David are up there with the best of the best. When some of these lyricists you've mentioned are ones that, like, the lyrics are produced first, presumably, or at least by a separate person, right? If you're talking about Squeeze, that you've got Difford writing the music and... Tilbrook. Oh, no, sorry. It's Tilbrook writing the music and Difford writing the lyrics. And I think that it is sort of a Elton John and his uh, lyricist. It is totally the partnership. Yes, yeah. yes. That where if you're starting with lyrics or at least you're the dedicated lyricist, then there seems like a greater poetic responsibility. Like, of course, you still have to rhyme. You still face the problems. But that's much different than if you are writing some sort of exclamation, you know, and you've got your music written and you basically could just even have a howl as the chorus or whatever. Like, I'm just expressing what I want to express. And then you could just kind of fit some lyrics in there that maybe they mean something. Maybe they don't. Maybe they're just filling up space. Like that is what I associate with pop music. And the fact that, like I was saying, you know, people focus onto the hook. They might just not even get its meaning is entirely optional in the rest. So it's like, you know, very fertile ground for making fun of or poking holes in 
the things that they semi-randomly use to fill out the rest of the song. I think you've nailed it there. And I think if we can get Al in on this, because I often think, say, for example, the Gloria Estefan example, what you've got there is a lyric being carried by a tune. Okay. Mm-hmm. Whereas, and obviously they put that lyric in there because it fits with the beat. If you look at a song like, like a Rolling Stone, you've got the converse where the tune is not really that important. It's just there to carry the lyric. So you've got lyrics carrying tunes and tunes mm-hmm. carrying lyrics. If you're brilliant like Nick Cave, you can do both. But I think it's an important distinction where you say, is that lyric there because the tune's so good or is it the other way around? If you look at a lot of dinner stuff, the music, it's almost like a bedrock, isn't it? It's almost like a foundation. It's not really that important. Fairport Convention do it as well a lot. You know, like Matty Groves, songs like that, where you think, well, we've got this underlying motif of chords underneath, but it's just there really just to drive. It's the lyric that's the most important thing. I mean, that's interesting because I had thought of those rock renditions of classical English folk tunes or whatever as being, I don't want to deal with writing lyrics. We're going to take a pre-existing thing and the creativity is all going to go into the arrangement of this, that it's not necessarily we're trying to figure out what is the best way to tell the story of Matty Groves or whatever. It's that we're just going to take this traditional thing and these skills that we've learned as traditional musicians or, you know, with, with knowledge more or less reverently, like, you know, the Pogues, we have a passing knowledge of the folk stuff, but we're really punk rockers and, you know, we're going to jam these things together. A wide answer to that is in both those examples, both Shemagoan and Fairport, is that, yes, they do do that. I think they've got a reference towards traditional music and they've got like Magic Grows and like and the Pogues are doing like Waltz and Matilda. But yeah. they've demonstrated elsewhere in their back catalogue that they could get well right, okay? Because I if, mean, you mm-hmm. to, if you listen to, if you, if you listen to Fairport, like a song like, who knows where the time goes? That is literal poetry. Okay. Sure. They've demonstrated elsewhere in their catalogue that they are perfectly capable of doing it, but they're choosing just to put their own interpretations into I, I know what you're saying because you get a lot of bands that just look at doing traditional arrangements because they can't write. Fairport are example, and I, I will be sending this to Rick Sanders as well. So that's because <laughs> so, I spoke to him yesterday on the phone. But Fairport are a band where they say, okay, we'll revisit this because this is our tradition and we recognize in our tradition. But by the same token, we can write fantastic songs by ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On some days, I think Shane McGowan is the greatest lyricist who's ever been. I think, yeah, I think you might be the, right. Yeah. Just needed to say that. But the point, Mark, about, I guess, song setting or like newer takes on, on traditional music is really interesting and says something about the place of lyrics. In those cases where you do start with the lyrics, that always seemed to me like the much harder way of doing things because then the job of the composer or the the job of whoever's writing the music is to evoke the meaning of the lyrics. Mm. And that seems like a much harder job to me than writing lyrics, which capture something of what's expressed by a pre-existing melody. I don't know about you guys, whenever I write music, it's always, everything always comes together or like the key line, the chorus line will come, the lyric will come with a melody already attached to it. And it always seems clunky to me to do things any other way but that's because i'm not especially talented or a professional it's <laughs> i find it hard because it's hard and you need to be extremely good to be able to work it but do either of you guys dave you must i assume you write music as well yeah yeah I write this, yeah. yeah do either of you guys have a preferred way of doing things does everything happen only in one order for you it's lyrics for me lyrics first it's always because i'm more of a lyricist than i'm a musician but again i like the fact that I don't do it for a living writing because 
I'd hate to be in a position where you, where you have to like, I'll get back to Scott Walker again because he's my idol, but Scott Walker says, you know, they said, why do you release an album every 15 years? He goes, because you can't force it. And when it comes, it comes. So I'd hate to be in a position where I had to write to order album tour, album tour on, you know, on, on the treadmill. We've had this thing recently with Spotify, haven't we, where Spotify's founders said, you've got to just, you've got to come up with consistently good quality again and again. That's not the artistic process. You can't just switch it on. I don't think you should actually sit down and say, I'm going to write a song today. You've got to get the lyric in your head and write it when it comes. I don't think you can force it out. One of my recent music interviews opened my eyes to how I actually do things. I was talking to Wesley Stace, a.k.a. John Wesley Harding, about his wow. recent album Late Style, which he didn't write any of the music for. He wanted to write some sort of smooth jazz dinner music. And he's like, I don't, I'm a guitarist. I don't play piano. I don't do the thick chords. I don't write that way. So he had his band leader, you know, his longtime confidant, write all the music, but they were all still his songs. He wrote lyrics first and he wrote the rhythms to the lyrics. And he sent mm. the guy demos that were him saying the lyrics in the rhythm that they should be. And then, so that's basically, even though if when I write lyrics first, I have in mind, you know, some sort of dummy melody or something. You know, that then, you know, when I bring my guitar in, then I'll try to thicken the chords and make it more interesting because I find if I just write literally what was in mind when I was doing the lyrics, they are the, it's the dumbest possible chord progressions. It's the easiest, <laughs> simplest possible thing. And I want to make it more interesting than that. But yeah, the core of the song is just so that's very different than I wrote some lyrics and I send it to my friend who then actually comes up with the song because then they have to figure out the phrasing. So the phrasing is like, you know, an essential component to the lyrics for me. I know that Johnny Marr used to get exasperated with Morrissey because he come back with this lush, I mean, as, as a guitarist, it's beautiful to play. Mm -hmm. But he, he had this amazing piece of music and he, oh, I'm so pleased with that. And he sent it to Morrissey and then Morrissey came back with some girls bigger than others, you know. <laughs> so it's like an abuse of what he'd sent, you know. So, but sometimes you find a happy melody i mean obviously a song like help you've got this beautiful melody there but it's masking a, a desperate desperate message isn't it sometimes you look at a I mean, conversely sometimes you look at maudlin songs but there's a beautiful lyric attached to them and but sometimes you get a really jaunty jangly tune and you read the lyric and you go god that's a dark lyric sure and that's the way you're talking al of sort of you got to write them together it's because you have those juxtapositions in mind. It's because you're trying to, mm -hmm. I'm reflecting, you know, the bittersweet quality of, you know, whatever the thing is that even if I'm saying something depressing that I, I'm embracing my depression, it's going to be a, a fast song. You know, you'd have at least some mood in mind, even if you don't have all the chords figured out before an instrument gets in your hands. Yeah, I think mood is right. Like even deciding whether you're rising with a degree of irony or sincerity or, mm -hmm. or like wh or whatever else it might be. Yeah. What you said about rhythm makes a lot of sense as well. And that's the difference between coming up with something that's going to be a song lyric and something that's going to be uh, like a tweet or uh, a text message or a meme. I think this is the 50th anniversary I've been seeing on Facebook of the King Crimson's Islands album. And that was an example of a band where it was pre-existing lyrics that just send them to the musicians and let them do things. And every album from the, the Court of the Crimson King to Islands, it got, the division got worse and worse, such that by the last one, Robert Fripp hated the lyrics that were coming in. And the guy that wrote the lyrics hated the, the interpretation of them. And like, you know, that was the end of that band. The ways in which these conjunctions of different creative minds can produce wonderful things, of course. The Smiths model, also in Zeppelin, of like, 
I'm a good guitarist. I come up with good licks. I don't even know what the melody's going to be. Lyricist, go do something with that. I don't know. That's a very unnatural way of putting songs together. REM, another example. I feel like a lot of times what the lead singer is doing doesn't really make sense to the music in that it can be genius. Talking Heads did a few albums where David Byrne did that and it turned out wonderfully. But that's interesting because I'm a big Squeeze fan and sometimes you forget, you know, when you go and see Squeeze, Tilbrook's so impassioned. He's one of the, he's one of the mm-hmm. greatest vocalists in that field anyway. And he's so impassioned when he delivers the lyrics, same as Roger Daltrey. It takes you a jarring moment to go, oh, no, you didn't write that. That's the guy standing next to you. You know, it's really hard. If it's delivered that well, and it's so much passion in there, it's sometimes you get that jarring thought. You go, no, it's the bloke next to you. The, 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 the bloke who's just standing there saying nothing, playing guitar. You're just channeling what he's written. It's really weird that. Do you, do you agree? Yeah, you got to have a really good actor, basically, as your lead singer, somebody that can do that. Whereas a lot of times, like I would hear an early Steve Hackett album or something. So amazing guitarist. And he would sing like only one song on the album. And I would like that one the best because he Mm -hmm. got these amazing lead singers to come in as session guys. And, you know, without a long history of relationship, you know, the guy from Kansas or whatever, and give this soaring vocal. And like, it just leaves me totally cold. Like, I don't feel like this is added up to what it's supposed to. You're not the soul is not even if it's a soulful singer whose work I like in other contexts, the soul of that song is not, you know, it takes a long relationship like the who developed between those two guys to enable it to work i think it's a really important point there that you brought up you know subliminally there is i'm a trained vocalist okay and i was classically trained in the 90s and my singing teacher used to complain about people on the radio and he said to me i had this vocal last night he's bellowing all over it you know it's and he said to paraphrase jfk think not what the song can do for you. Think of what you can do for the song. <laughs> if it's a restrained vocal, I mean, Frank Sinatra would say, you know, don't give it, just stick in a note that now and again, just to let them know that you can do it. But actually you've got to pay respect to, that's one thing with Sinatra. He did, he did pay total respect to the lyrics that he was delivering, you know? So he'd say, you know, you've got this stuff in your toolbox, you know, hit a top C, just one in the song, but the rest of the song is about just focusing. You've got to pay respect to that lyric without bellowing on over it and just proving what a great singer you are that day. So that's a good point, I think. I just was reading, coincidentally, something about the journey of Foreigner, that this was another the Led Zeppelin sort of thing where, Sometimes Lou Graham would write his own lyrics and sing them. And sometimes he would just do what was given to him by Mick Jones. And as that band was sort of gradually, they they were gradually growing apart throughout the early 80s to the point of this, I don't want to live without you song, which was one of their last really big singles that Lou Graham absolutely hated and tried to sabotage it by under singing it. That like, I will put none, you will not even know that it's me singing it. Like, I thought maybe this could be Mick himself singing it because it's so unlike his normal soaring jukebox hero sort of thing, but it ended up working and became a massive hit anyway. It's like, I tried to destroy the song. I hated it. Oh, well. (laughs) Well, that's the same with Creep, isn't it? You know, with that bit, but the the guitarist put that in there to sabotage the song. And it's the most memorable part of the song. It's the most powerful (laughs) part of the song. Wasn't that the story with You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet with Batman Turner Overdrive as well? They did the, the silly, the way in which the singer... But baby, you ain't anything. Yeah, that's not how, I can't remember if it's Batman Turner or indeed Overdrive who was the <laughs> singer in that band. But they're singing in a deliberately silly way because they 
didn't care for the song that much and didn't think it would do all that much for them and that it became their second biggest hit. Maybe again, it doesn't we, matter. But, but again, Maybe none again, of this matters. <laughs> back to that really vital thing about, you know, as soon as it's released, you've lost all control, whether it be a film or, a, mm-hmm. or any art form. So he's sabotaging the song, but he's not banking on the fact that when it's going to be released, then it's not his baby anymore. Yeah. And some of this is just, I don't know, you can try to write such that you're bulletproof. <laughs> like, I'm going to write something that's respectable from all corners. It's going to, you know, the lyrics are going to make sense. It's going to have a wonderful melody. It's going to be beautifully arranged. And somebody can still come along and get entirely the wrong point of it. And it just makes you say, I should just be vulnerable and create something that is very one-sided and meaningful to me, but could also be seen as totally embarrassing by somebody else. And that is actually a better way of songwriting than to try to write fully developed, respectable <laughs> tunes. Yeah, the important point there is, I mean, one of my favorite artists is Tim Smith and Cardiacs. I'm a Cardiacs fanatic. I've been since they started. If you're dealing with artists that have got no commercial sensibilities and they're writing for themselves, this is a really important point. If they're writing for themselves rather than saying that this will chart, you're going to get a different quality of song, aren't you? I tend to find that if something's with commercial sensibilities in mind, you're going to lose something. Mm-hmm. unless you're lucky. That's what I think. What do you think, Al? I think there's a lot to that. Uh, a while ago when I was still writing, I would probably have, have, have said exactly the same thing. Now I think it's entirely possible to write brilliant music with integrity for a commercial purpose. You're just setting yourself up with a much, much harder challenge. Okay, yes, a good point, yeah. For some reason in my head is Lady Gaga, who writes by any measure phenomenal music and incredible lyrics and it's not accidentally commercially successful either she was always supposed to be an international megastar but it's just really hard and that's why so many people end up doing such a bad job of it because yeah you have to go one way or the other and if your aim is to be commercially successful you're just setting yourself up with with a number of ways to fail when i was writing i was happy being underappreciated which meant that i it was very easy for me to to write lyrics which i never needed to care about anyone else liking. That was a security blanket for me. Totally. I like it both ways. I like the extremely personal stuff that, you know, you can be as eccentric as you want and maybe it turns out embarrassing. But I also like guardrails. Like I like groups that work together and quality control each other and people who overthink and get a good producer in Mm. and do cover their bases because like that's the difference. You know, that's the difference between the who and Pete Townsend solo stuff that I recall reading a, a review of you know, the mark of genius is that it can go between being amazing and completely embarrassing. And that's like what a Pete Townsend solo release is because there are no guardrails. It is just whatever sort of he feels like at the moment. And you're going to feel a lot of nonsense. <laughs> the geniuses are going to accrete a lot of uh, ridiculous stuff. And so it is good, at least some of the time, to have other people in the band, you know, like in the police, the other guys did not like ballads. So Sting didn't really write, you know, Every Breath You Take is barely a ballad. It's like the most ballad thing that they did. But that provided a certain guardrail and consistency of sound. And then once he was on his own, then, you know, we get the sprawling mess that he has that is sometimes beautiful. And sometimes I I don't know why he (laughs) did this. There's also a point there, which is, I think, illustrated really, really beautifully in Get Back, which is by the time you get to a certain level, only people who have gone on exactly the same journey as you and have got to the level that you're at in exactly the same way as you can tell you no. Mm-hmm. Only Paul McCartney can tell John Lennon to shut the fuck up. 
you know. You touched on a really important point there as well, Mark, about did you say every breath you take? Sure. Okay, I've done weddings and that's been the opening song. That's been, that's been that's the song. That's Docker song, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what this is about? And it's it's the same with the one I love as well. I've done a wedding once with somebody wanted the one I love as the first song. And you're going, if you listen to it. I went to see the Mountain Goats a month ago playing in Manchester, one of my favorite bands, and they have a song which got very famous on TikTok a couple of years ago called No Children, which is the best breakup song that anyone has has ever written. And John Danielle, who's the front man, was on stage talking about the number of people who have asked him to sing it at their weddings and how it's mm. always a no, because why would you want to? Why would you wish that kind of pain? People play, you've lost that love and feeling at weddings. It's like, what? what? <laughs> There's, okay. What? Yeah. That is that. That's what marriage is. <laughs> Did you know that the brief for that record was that the title was written before the lyric? Did you know that? You lost that love and feeling. The brief was that's your title and the lyric was written around it. There are worse ways to do things. <laughs> yeah. What's really interesting to me is I don't know too much about them, but you know this band, I think it's Chicago. Chicago wrote a lyric about writing a lyric. But what's that really big tune? It's got a time, it's, it's got a number in it. And basically the story is that they went home, they had this track, they didn't have a lyric, and the rest of the lyric is written about not having a lyric. And it's got, I've only got until this time to write this lyric. And it's a brilliant, brilliant song. I love songs that are written about writing songs. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, that's like all these novelists writing, making their characters novelists. Like it's just, a, <laughs> if you want to write about your experience, then write songs about being on the road. Write songs about having writer's block. Write songs about how it's all been done, you know, when, as you're trying to come up with a new song. I don't want to say that's lazy songwriting, but it's, it's definitely, uh, to me, that maybe limits your audience to other people who are trying to do this thing as well and can sympathize as opposed to the average person that could not care less of how difficult it is to get these words out of your brain. We were talking about Christmas songs on the previous podcast, and maybe that's that's one of the, it's like a Christmas song. Your song about how hard it is being a songwriter, you should probably only do one and make sure it's a good one. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Dave and, and Al, for, uh, I think we've done plenty here. Uh, it, was a, it was a joy uh, paging through your book, and I will continue to do so. Thank you very much, and uh, th- nice to meet you, Al. Very nice to meet you, Dave, and uh, I will also continue to enjoy the book. Bye-bye then, chaps. Thank you. Bye. So long, listeners. Thanks for listening. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network, and it's also presented by openculture.com.